So we've been together here now for seven days. We've been practicing. It's been a week. And I'd like to reflect on what, as I understand it, this teaching and this practice is really at its very heart pointing towards the potential we all have for awakening, for freedom, to realize this in our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. And to really ask the question, as I think we really need to ask of ourselves, do we trust, do we believe, Do we have confidence that this is something that is indeed possible for ourselves, for this heart, this mind, this being? Each of us. As human beings, we partake of the potential that the Buddha realized and manifested in his teaching. And so, it's important to stop and check in with ourselves, I think, sometimes, if we really have a sense of what that means. Which isn't the same as saying as we know what that is. Which is very different. And for me, in my early practice, I remember feeling it was something very important for me. It, it really was a very powerful element of my, my early years that I had the sense from my teachers that there was something profound to discover. And it was discoverable. And I didn't know what that was, but I can remember the first time I did a, a longer retreat on my own in Akuti. For just a few weeks it was, but I remember as I began the retreat with the sense of it could happen. I was quite young in my practice. I didn't have a clue what might happen or, in fact, what did happen. But that sense of it could happen. There's something in my heart that responded very powerfully to that sense of possibility. And this is a question of spiritual vision. Do we allow ourselves to be established in a aspiration for liberation, for awakening. Because this is the Buddha's teaching. And it is for this that he taught all those years. This piece of paper that I've been carrying around with me a long time is starting to fall apart. Um, And that's because I think I get it out and read it rather a lot. There's a few, for me, very important words of the Buddha scribbled, printed and copied onto it. The Buddha said once, the reason for my teaching is not for merit or good deeds, or good karma, or concentration, or rapture, or bliss, or even insight. 
None of these is the reason I teach. But the sure heart's release. This and only this is the reason for the teaching of the Buddha. The sure heart's release. A beautiful phrase. It gives for me a sense of confidence and uplift to hear that. Both the sense of the release being sure, but also the surety of being released. What does that mean for us? The Buddha himself clearly had a sense of this in his life before his own awakening. He had some spark, and more than a spark, it would have had to be a fire in his heart. And the way he practiced and the stories he tells and the teachings of his commitment, his passion, and as many of you know, and probably are familiar with the story of the Buddha, the point in which he sat down under the Bodhi tree, having taken a bowl of rice and milk to nourish himself after recognizing the, the limitations of, of austerity and effort, he sat down under the Bodhi tree and he resolved, he made this commitment, he said, I will not move from this spot until I have realized that which can be realized by human endeavor. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this spot until I have realized that which may be realized by human endeavor. That's quite a fire. That's quite a commitment. And I actually find a, almost like a shiver through my spine when I, and I've read and I've heard and I've recited those words on many occasions and still they speak to me. The Buddha sat down with that degree of commitment and it's recorded that having done so, the personification of of ignorance, of delusion, of greed, of hatred, of suffering, we could say, Mara came to the Buddha and questioned him, challenged him on his right to be there. What right have you to be sitting under the Bodhi tree on this spot seeking enlightenment? And it's said in the teaching, and the Buddha records that his response was to reach out his hand. I should get the right hand, really. He was right-handed. So I would have done it with this, but it wasn't me. I noticed my left hand does all these things. That's, that's probably a risky thing to have said, isn't it? Hmm. Anyway, what I meant to say, in indicating his gesture, he reached out to touch the earth. He put his hand on the earth. And really calling the earth, and in the language of the tradition, it's kind of sort of, kind of mythically articulated as a, a sort of a, a great deity, the earth goddess. But the earth responded to his touch, affirming his right to be sitting there. That's how it's recorded. And for me, this, this movement of touching the earth, and this is what this refers to, the mudra, the Buddha is sitting in here. Mudra is like a form or a shape. It's... Touching the Earth. And that's really the title or the theme for this talk this, that I'd like to reflect on. 
touching the earth. What does it mean to touch into that place where we can find a confidence in our potentiality for awakening? What does it mean to find that for ourselves, to know that in our hearts? Touching the earth in this way is essentially a metaphor for that knowing, that trust in potential, the potential of a human heart and mind to realize, to awaken, to be liberated. In Budgaya, the, the village, now in fact town almost, uh, around the location where the Buddha awakened, there are, there's a vast stupa, the Mahabodhi stupa, and there are many images of the Buddha. And almost all of them there are in that particular shape, touching the earth. There's other places where he's sitting like this, and he's sitting, this is the teaching mudra, this is meditation, there's any number of other ones. The fearless mudra, I've shown some of you. But this is the touching the earth, that hand to the ground. Something about, also for me, that the contact with the earth, there's something quite sort of organic and earthy. Um, it's not meant to be a pun. In that. Now one doesn't sort of list one's credentials saying, yeah, I'm entitled to this. It's just something about the earth. In fact, to me, the sense of our human life springing forth ultimately from the earth. So this symbol, this image is here for us. We've been with it all week. And there's something about both turning towards or reflecting on this possibility. Perhaps contemplating, considering what it might mean to trust in this, to open to this, to invite this potentiality to be known, to be seen, to be recognized. That we have, all of us, the capacity to realize what the Buddha realized to awaken as the Buddha awoke and as hundreds and thousands of women and men like ourselves have awoken throughout the generations of living practitioners who have passed and shared this teaching and practice of awakening from the time of the Buddha through to this very day and beyond. No doubt beyond it will continue. So what is it for us to take our practice in the spirit. To perhaps engage with what is here right now, in this moment and in any moment, that in this place, because there is no other place, awakening can be found or realized. In the place where we are, this potentiality is present. This potentiality has the capacity to flower, to flow, to, to show to heart and mind what it is that we, in the depths of our hearts and minds, wish to know, to understand and to realize. Do we believe this is possible for us?
It's not unusual in my experience to see that if one asks of oneself that question or if we discuss with others very quickly, very easily, and it seems compellingly and convincingly, or apparently convincingly, we come up with ever so many reasons why this does not really apply to me or to ourself. And so it's good to, it's not just good, it's important that we reflect on, we become conscious about those views, those ideas, because they are in fact the obstructions we place across the open door that is right here, always. And yet we don't realize. Much of the time, because we're not really looking for this, we've decided that in fact we have to do something else first. And the the most common way that expresses itself or shows itself is in the sense of yeah, okay, that's a nice idea. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, awakening, it sounds good. Freedom, yeah, I'll go for a bit of that. But, you know, probably what I really need to do first to sort myself out, because otherwise it's pretty unlikely, <laughs> looking at the condition I find myself in. You know, let's face it, I mean, potential is one thing, but actualizing that, realizing, hmm, it's so easy for us to operate to relate in this way. And this acts as a limit, as a constriction on the potentiality of a transformative spiritual vision, spiritual aspiration. So it's useful to look at these, these ways of relating and perceiving. And so much of them have to do with how we conceive and believe about ourselves, the ideas, the images, the conclusions that we've formed. This whole movement that we encounter towards self-fixing, self-improvement, self-development, which sounds actually quite healthy, doesn't it? Um, Clearly, there are plenty of things we can learn, we can develop, we can grow. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's really important that we come to understand our patterns, our habits, the places in which we have vulnerabilities or tendencies to get impacted or sort of triggered in ways that lead us into patterns of reactivity that are unhelpful, unskillful, leading to suffering and not happiness. That's a really important part of practice. But it is not the only thing we are concerned with. And it's very easy, because there's so much of that to get on with and get busy with, to sort of start to imagine that's really what it's all about. And it tends to fit in with an idea that we come very easily to hold, that somehow that fixing, improving, progressing, developing, getting somewhere, going somewhere, is what it's all about. Because that's what's going on in the world much of the time. And yet ultimately this is really like someone who should choose to rearrange the furniture in their prison cell and spend all their time 
wondering about whether to get a new sofa. Or possibly we might redecorate. And yet, still within a profoundly limited view of what is true and real. So, we're not here to become something other than what we already are. We're not here to fulfill some spiritual ideal or idea about what it means to be enlightened, awakened, liberated. All those ideas will inevitably be traps Because what we're here for is not something that our mind can conceive. It can't wrap itself around freedom. And it can only think of freedom in its own terms, which are inevitably limited. And so this movement of becoming is not what we're here for. So, some of the views we hold. I have to work out all my karma. You know, if we've been studying Buddhism or Eastern philosophy, we have some understanding of the way that actions lead to results. And the idea that somehow we've got to, all the things I've done in my life, and apparently there was more than one life, so there's been a lot of things I've done, and I'm going to have to sort them all out before I can move on. Now it's really clear from the teachings and the Buddha refers to places and times where he received having and after his own awakening where he encountered the results of his karma. There's one specific story where he talks about having having got a a splinter in his foot and it hurts and it was really painful. And he, he describes the circumstances that gave rise to that from something he'd done previously. So very clearly, without saying it in as many words, the enlightened, awakened Buddha is still subject to experiences born of past karma. They don't need to be somehow processed all before. We can have the image, the idea, that I've just done too many things that are bad, that are harmful, that were hurtful, that were angry, that were deluded or confused. There's no way. It's sort of like, you know, I I wouldn't get an entry ticket to heaven looking at my history. So awakening is equally unavailable. We have this sort of very tragically judgmental and moralistic relationship at times to ourselves. And again, to just to look in the tradition, we see the examples and the one that stands out so strongly of Angulimala who had murdered, there's variations on whether it was hundreds or thousands, but lots of people, (laughs) lots of people, and in fact wore their fingers on a chain around his neck. It's Angulia's finger and Mala his necklace. This was quite a gruesome character. (laughs) And again, there's different versions. Some versions of the story suggest this was a spiritual practice he was engaged in, but even then, that was pretty dubious if you ask me. 
And he endeavored at one point to make the Buddha his uh, hundredth or thousandth victim, depending on the versions. Um, And in his encounter with the Buddha, the Buddha spoke to him in such a way that he was quite touched and profoundly affected and actually woke up in the interaction with the Buddha. And it's amazing. There's this guy. I mean, you know, I've done a few things I'm kind of sorry I did, and some I'm actually quite ashamed about. And probably we've all done a few things we're kind of sorry we did, and maybe the odd one we're a little bit ashamed about. But I don't know about you, maybe, but but mine, it kind of pales a little bit compared to that. Now, I don't want to make this as a joke, because I once had someone on a retreat, and I don't know your situation, who, who had due to the circumstances of their life, found themselves fighting in a guerrilla war in the jungle. And they'd they'd taken lives of human beings. So it's not a light thing. I don't know. But for me, that someone could have, in the situation that's described of Angulimala, been essentially a mass murderer, mass murderer. And that the wisdom that allowed awakening to flower in his consciousness was still available, still accessible, still possible. And what does that say about us? It certainly says something to me about the idea that I've done too many bad things or wrong things in my life. And equally the idea that you know I somehow need to purify myself. It's another version of the same thing, really. And yet, There's a, a wonderful dialogue described in the, in the teachings, in the suttas, where the Buddha encounters a, a monk, a Jain monk. And uh, the Jains are sometimes sort of the fall guys in the, uh, the Buddha's sutras, which is a little unfortunate because they've actually got a, very, a lot of very beautiful qualities in the, in the tradition and the practice, among which is a, a real commitment to not causing any harm to any living being, and really to the extent wearing masks over their faces so as to not inhale insects, and carrying little br- brushes so they brush all living creatures away, and it slows them down a little bit when they're walking. But they make really sure they don't cause any harm. It's beautiful. Um, but on this occasion, the, the Buddha encountered a Jain monk, and the, uh, the monk was standing on one foot, and he'd been there for quite a while. And... Uh, he, from the expression on his face, seemed to be finding this quite challenging. And the Buddha came up to him and said, yeah, what are you doing, good sir? So, you know, guessing probably accurately that it was spiritual practice of some sort. And uh, actually in India these days you can find people doing similar things. If you go and look, uh, standing on one foot or holding the one arm up, there's a very famous uh, sort of uh, practitioner who has a, I think it's a sort of a, some kind of nest that's been formed in his arm because he hasn't moved his arm for some incredibly long period of time. And uh, he asked the, bu- he asked, the Buddha asked the Jain monk, you know, what are you doing? And, and he said, oh, I'm purifying my karma by standing here experiencing really strong, painful experiences. I'm somehow transforming all the things that I've done in the past and I'm somehow sort of, as if... You know, the more pain, the better, basically. And the more pain I get, the clearer, the purer, the cleaner I become as a being. And so the Buddha questioned him. He said, oh, can you tell me, in this, this practice you're doing, how much of your, your karma or your purification, how far have you got with it, you know? And, and the, the man said, the, the monk said, I don't know. And he said, can you tell me, you know, how long 
it's going to take? And he said, I don't know. And he questioned him like this. And every time the Buddha asked him a question, the response was, actually, I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know how much I've actually processed already. And the Buddha said to him in the end, how will you know when you've come to an end of all of this? And the monk's response was, actually, I have no idea. And the Buddha said to him then, there's another way. There's another way. So we have this idea of this sense of me that's on this journey to get enlightened. And along the way, we need to get rid of all the bits of me that we think are in the way of getting to that condition, discovering what that actually might mean. And that really keeps us busy. It's an incredible amount of work. It's exhausting. And more than exhausting, it's frustrating. Because it doesn't actually ever come to completion. We never come to the end of that process. So there's a story I'd like to uh, share from uh, China. And it uh, concerns the succession in a very uh, famous and much-respected monastery where the abbot was aware that his time was coming near, his time of death was approaching, and he was seeking who would be the successor, the teacher, the Dharma heir, as they say in that tradition, for, for his monastery. And uh, reflecting on it, he decided rather than just appointing someone, he would, he would have a competition to see who was the wisest amongst his followers. And so the next senior most monk, who was also much loved and much respected, the competition was that he asked them to write a short poem to express their understanding. And the, the, the next most senior and much respected monk, who everyone assumed would win the, the competition, wrote his poem on the wall. He said, and it rent, um, The body is a Bodhi tree the mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight. And everyone else, oh wow, that's really beautiful. Wow. Now everyone was very touched by this teaching and the, and the real wisdom in it. And no one else wrote another poem. And at the time there was a, a young man living as an assistant to the cook in the, in the basement of the uh, monastery. His name was Hui Ning. And he'd heard about the competition. And he, in fact, having been introduced to some Dharma teachings when um, a teenager and before he came to the monastery, had actually had some profound awakening and understanding. So he, he made his way up from the kitchen to the, the wall where the poem was written. And he read it. In fact, he couldn't read it. He asked someone to read it to him. And he realized that this was not actually the deepest wisdom. And he asked this person, he said, can you write this poem up there for me? And Hui Ning's poem went like this. He said, There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright, since all is void and empty. Where could the dust alight? <laughs> now, you can tell by the story who's going to win the competition. <laughs> it was Hui Ning. And unfortunately, none of the other monks were very happy about this, because this was a kitchen hand, and they were all very 
serious monk. So he had to run from the monastery with the um, bowl and robe of office and uh, eventually established a, a monastery elsewhere. But to, just to pick up that sense of we, we can have this idea that what we're doing here is somehow working through all the greed and hatred and delusion that we encounter and sort of unpacking it and cleaning it up and sorting it out and trying to make sure we don't make a mess with it, which is an important part of practice. That's the polishing the mirror, polishing the mirror, keeping, trying to keep the heart and mind from being, we could say, defiled or impure, you know, sullied in some way. And then Huai Ning's understanding, he's not denying the dust. The dust is part of his understanding. The dust here is, is the, the greed, the confusion, the reactivity, the negativity that we encounter, that we experience. But what he's pointing to is that there's nowhere that it lands. There's nowhere that it lands. Understanding this is very much at the heart of this teaching. So long as we're fascinated by that process of fixing, improving, reorganizing, so long as we're entranced and intoxicated by that process, we're inevitably compelled, or our mind is inevitably compelled to keep locking on to particulars to determine, is this a something that I need to sort out? Is this experience, this perception, this arising of a feeling or an image or a reaction, is it something I need to act on, get rid of, fix, purify? And what happens in that process is that we make the engagement with the things that arise, the experiences that show up, we make that the predominant and the prioritized orientation of the mind. And something very different begins to happen when we start to see that all these experiences moving through do not define ultimately who and what we are. That we do need to learn to handle them. We've talked about that. Nothing, um, I'm not meaning to say in any way that there isn't a real importance and value in learning to skillfully recognize, understand, and work with all that territory. But to not limit our practice to just this. Because as we allow ourselves to start to almost, we could say, settle back and not take hold of with quite so much determination, to not take hold of the movement and flow of experience and all the things that arise, the forms, the shapes, the, as Pascal spoke about, the, the form, the feeling, the perceptions, the formations or constructions and the consciousness that knows these, to not take hold of any or all of that. When we don't pick up the particulars, when we don't shrink the mind around the particulars, there's something else we start to resonate with, we start to become sensitized to, we start to become able to 
we could say know or recognize or feel or experience and none of those words would be quite the right word but they kind of maybe give some sense of a different kind of knowing and understanding and recognizing that we can call realizing. There's a, a piece from the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, which speaks to this. And it's uh, taken from the point after his uh, spiritual journey, having apparently come to a rather inglorious failure. Siddhartha is uh, given up. He's a contemporary of the Buddha in the story. He's, he's not the Buddha. Um, he's given up on his practice, and he's sitting desolate and despairing beside the river. And then he starts to listen to the sound of the river. And over time, this is what takes place. It says, or it reads, Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all, the, all this before, all the numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the... I can't read this anymore. The merry voice from the weeping, the childish voice from the manly one. They all belong to each other, the lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of the indignant and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. All the voices, all the good, all the goals, all the yearnings, the sorrows, the pleasures, all the good and the harm, all of them together with the world, all of them together in the stream of events and the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this sound, to this river, to the song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or to the laughter, did not bind himself to any one particular one, any particular voice, and hold it or absorb it into himself, but heard them all, the unity. Then the great song of a thousand voiced voices consisted of one word, perfection. To not bind ourselves to the particularities but to actually allow it all in. This is actually what we're learning to do. This is what we're asked to do in our practice as we find ourselves more able to be fully present, to be awake. We can come to see the totality and it speaks to us 
in that song of a thousand voices that Hess describes. It speaks to us of something that we could call perfection that is not subject to what the individualities, the particularities are subject. The truth that spiritual teachings are pointing to is reflected equally in all, in every, in each moment. If it were not so, it would not have the capacity to liberate our hearts. To treat each moment, to give each experience, to give every single thing that to honor that potential, that possibility in all moments, in all things, in all experience, that this moment, this experience offers in itself its particularity, but it equally offers something that reflects back to us what we, in our hearts, want to know. And so, in terms of a purifying, one of the things we are purifying here is our willingness to meet it all. To not say of anything that this is without value, without its place in this flow and manifestation of life. And to to really check in with this way, again, coming back to the way in which we might separate ourselves or distinguish ourselves from this potential of awakening. One of the ways we do that is we project onto the Buddha something that the Buddha was not, which is somehow as if the Buddha was outside of or beyond the human experience. And that we somehow ourselves must go beyond it in order to know what the Buddha knew. The Buddha is spoken of as a model of perfection. And there's truth in that, in terms of his remarkable fulfilling of the human capacity for many beautiful qualities such as generosity, patience, loving kindness, wisdom, resolve, and others besides. And yet, He was a human being. He experienced pain. And there's this paragraphs or passages where he describes painful, racking, piercing sensations in his body. And it's like you think that's not something that's being said by someone who's sort of a long way distant from it. Painful, piercing, racking sensations. It's like, ouch. This was the Buddha's experience. And we're talking about after his awakening here. There's a story which I find very, very touching where he, he describes the condition. He, he's with a, a community of monks and nuns and practitioners and he's speaking to Ananda, his attendant and a sort of good friend over his life. And he, he says, Ananda, it was late in the evening, he says, the monks and the nuns Their minds are bright and clear. They are attentive and eager to hear the Dharma teachings. But 
my back is sore and aching. I'm going to go and lie down and rest. You give them a Dharma talk. (laughs) And for me, it's wonderful. I mean, the monks and the nuns, they wanted to hear from the Buddha. For sure. Sort of Ananda was a bit of a fool guy in a lot of the stories. Sort of the, you know, the one who got it wrong and got corrected by the Buddha in all sorts of ways. And yet here's the, the Buddha, this remarkable being, saying, actually, I'm going to take a break. It's a bit tough in my body right now. I find that incredible and beautiful. It's like I can see the humanity there. And that tells us that our humanity is part of this, not apart from it. And even more than that, what it appears to me, and others too, there's different ways one can read it, that the, the Buddha experienced difficult mental conditions, even after his awakening at times. Now, this is controversial, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I have immense love for the Buddha and the teaching. And yet, if I read what he said about what happened, I find it hard to form a different conclusion. And the first and most striking example is that the Buddha, quite soon after his awakening, contemplated sharing this profound and liberating teaching. And when he thought about it, he thought, this is profound. This is subtle. This is not easy to comprehend this that I have discovered. He said, if I try and teach it to people, they won't get it. And that will be really irritating and troubling and wearying to me. Interesting, huh? He's just awakened. He's just got like, this has got to be good, you know, according to the stories. And yet it's going to be, I I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it in English. But the sense that he says is, um, and the translations vary, as translations do. So we can't nail down the exact word. But the sense of, even if it was just, it would be wearying to me, therefore I won't? It's like, that's got to be quite wearisome, you would imagine. And it's like, so he's making a choice in that moment. Now, fortunately, it didn't stay in that place that what then arose was compassion. And the, sort of the, the story tells it if, as if the, uh, it was a uh, sort of a more mythological um, manifestation that it was actually a Brahma, a uh, sort of a divine being who came and said, but there are those with little dust in their eyes who will understand your teaching, Lord. Please teach the Dharma out of compassion for all beings. And fortunately for us, he did. But for me, that sense of, you know, one's just understood something, yeah, it's pretty hard to understand, but... If he's liberated, if he's awakened, and still things could be wearying for him. Huh, human being. Something we can recognize in that. And throughout the teachings that he gave, he at times referred to and alluded to encounters with Mara. This, the way it's told in the, in the language of the, the suttas, it's like this being who turns up, who's trying to fool him, trying to generate or give rise to, to fear or, or lust or confusion in his mind. 
or in fact to, to encourage him to give up teaching because it's lots of hard work and uh, just hang out and enjoy his, his blissful mind states that he can produce at will if he wants to. You know, why, why, why spend all that trouble teaching these difficult people? You can just hang out at ease, Mara says to him. And he says, you know, he, he doesn't believe, he, he's not fooled by that. But it's interesting because one can read that and see it if one looks at it. Like, oh, this is craving arising, or this is the longing for not having to work too hard or too long arising in his mind, and he sees it for what it is. But the fact that it arises is like, huh, okay. So the fact of that arising is not defining what this is pointing to. Do you follow what I'm saying there? Um, it's like we imagine that, well, hey, enlightenment must mean I don't have to have any difficult things go on anymore. And if I've got this many difficult things, I must be a long way away from it. Huh? That's the way we tend to think. That's the way we tend to conceive. Now, with this, with this way of relating, we lose the sense of possibility. If we reflect on it, if we become conscious of where we might be conceiving or perceiving in that way, we can perhaps recognize that at some level we might have made a decision in our heart that says, yeah, but later, later, later. There is no later with regard to this. We might have the view that, you know, it's supposed to take thousands and thousands of lifetimes. We've heard that maybe. And if that is true, and I don't know, but even if it was true, we don't know how many thousands and thousands of lifetimes we've already had. Maybe this is the one. <laughs> really? I'm, maybe this is the one. So what is it to come back to the sense of possibility? To allow ourselves to be touched by that without knowing what that is, what or how that will reveal itself. And yet to trust in this possibility. This process and journey of awakening is not about going or getting to somewhere else, becoming something or someone other than what we are. This is a key understanding. Anything we become, we cannot continue to be. Whatever we become is not ultimately what we are. So what I mean by that, if we can, if it's something that has changed to make it so, it's something that will change again to make it so, to make it not so. That's inevitable. 
that's inevitable. If something changed, it's obviously not what's inherent, what's most fundamental. And there's many changes, and there's room for plenty of, as I said, change in terms of growth, in terms of development, in terms of learning, maturing, and a real richness and importance in that for us. And yet, anything we gain, we can lose. Anything we become, we will ultimately cease to be. And so, what might we discover? What might we understand that is not of the order of that which comes and goes? Which becoming does not apply to. Just again, quoting from the Buddha. There is that dimension where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no air, no space, no consciousness. Neither this world, nor another world, nor both. Neither sun nor moon. Here, friends, I say, there is no coming, no going, no staying still. No passing, no arising, no movement, nor fixed, without support. This just this is the end of suffering. Again, what's the Buddha speaking about? He's pointing, but not to something. How do you point to not something? <laughs> pointing is all about something, isn't it? How do you point to that? The Buddha would sometimes ask his uh, followers questions to test their knowledge. And one time he asked his followers, he said, and he spoke of it, the word he would use for himself was Tathagata, which translates as either the one who has thus come or thus gone or the thus come one. And none of them really make a lot of sense to me. Um, but that's what the translators tend to come up with for that. So Tathagata is better. At least then we're not pretending we know what he meant. <laughs> but the Tathagata, he would say, is the Tathagata to be found in the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness? And the followers would say, no, no, the Tathagata can't be find, found in these, in this, you know, form and feelings as... as as Pascal was speaking about last, we can't find anything here that's me, ultimately. And then he would say, is the Tathagata to be found outside of the five aggregates? No, Lord. And he said, yes, this is so. We, what we're pointing to is not inside nor outside of all this that we know and experience that we talk about, the five aggregates. Where does that leave us in this inquiry? Where does that leave our 
our mind. Neither inside of all of this, nor apart from it. What else is there? Suffering, entanglement, you could say the loss or non-recognition of freedom is based in not seeing, in blindness and ignorance, which we've spoken about, in not understanding the way things are, not understanding our particular individual and personal conditioning and patterning not understanding the changing nature of experience and the the fact that it cannot give us lasting satisfaction, not understanding that experience ultimately doesn't refer to a someone who is the owner of it. And yet, it's equally about and most fundamentally about understanding the nature of all things. That is our nature we could say, that isn't a something, but is revealed in all things, and is therefore equally not a nothing. And when we talk about it, we either have to go with our mind towards something, is it something? No. Well, is it nothing? No. And our mind is left without an option. Can we allow our mind to be left at this point? Our thinking mind has to have a humility here as to its limitations. Our conceiving is not the profoundest organ of knowing that we have access to. It's our our very totality that can know what we're talking about. No part of it. No part of it. So we notice there's this movement in the very depths of what we call us, this being, that's interested, perhaps that yearns, that longs, that wishes for freedom, for realization, for awakening, and imagines it somewhere else, or to be found in something else. And in that we become entangled in an ongoing struggle, seeking, looking, seeking, looking, never finding. When we settle back from that process, when we allow ourselves to land more fully, more deeply in the moment that we're in, without looking away and yet not looking for anything at all. What is it that's really happening here, right now? that's always happening. So long as we're looking outside of this here-ness, this now-ness, this 
conscious suchness of being, aliveness, that is what's actually happening. So long as we're looking somewhere else, we can't see this. And yet, it's, very, it's this that allows us to see anything else, to conceive, to experience, to be touched by anything and everything. What is this that's happening right here, right now? That isn't any of the experience, and yet isn't apart from any of the experience. What we're really looking for is simply that which is looking. And to realize this, the sense of looking for something else dissolves into its discovery, into the its, into the realization that what is looked for is already here. And there is not somewhere else to look. The movement of seeking, of looking. And what is discovered are the same, not apart. And ultimately, what we realize, what we discover, is that we have never been and could never be apart from our nature, from the the deepest truth of life. It's always and unstoppably expressing itself revealing itself. And it isn't a self, but nor is it nothing. To come to rest where we are, this is the invitation of our practice, to come to rest to seek moving away, to cease moving away in the looking for something else, to come to rest here in this that is just this. There's a Zen koan that says, what is the face you had before you were born? Of this discovery, Rumi spoke this way. He said, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together.
And so we may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to deeply trust in our capacity and potential for awakening. And come to know in our own hearts that freedom and peace that is the very nature of what we are. For our own liberation, for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.